Welcome to this week's episode of Writers You Don't Write. I'm Jeff. And I'm Kyle. And we are here to talk about podcasts. Because we're on one. Get it? Super meta. Are we here to talk about podcasts? I thought we were here to talk about Louise O'Neill. Yeah, our guest for, this week. for a second. Um, we're going to talk about podcasts. Because there's this new thing that we're doing. It's called Tripod. T-R-Y-P-O-D. There's a hashtag in front of it. Uh, it is like a collaborative effort between all the bigwigs in podcasting. Um, you know, you have NPR, WNYC, all the local NPR stations, Midroll, Panoply, um, you know, all the big boys are doing this thing where you teach somebody who has never listened to a podcast how it works. And you can also recommend your favorite podcast using the tripod hashtag. Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, you know, Ugh. I know it's crazy for you all who's, who are listening to this, but there's a million people out there who have never actually listened to a podcast and don't know how. Uh, so the industry as a whole is just trying to get more people to do it. It's this big, weird, gross PR push, but it's awesome. And it helps us out a lot. So just want to let you all know. And now Kyle can stop doing that. Ugh. Well, no, this is why it's it was hard for me to get into podcasting in the first place. Because it's I don't know how else to describe it other than the fact that it's a bit much. But I'm going to try. It's that thing where podcasts uh, are typically viewed as the domain of hipsters, right? And hipsters have a certain method about which they explain everything to you. Well, I, I, um, I disagree that. First, I disagree. And so they are cooler than you and they're offering a chance for you to glimpse their super cool world that only they have discovered. And, you know, yeah, you but I mean, I think that podcasts were the world of hipsters. Uh, and I think that now it's like a big part of the cultural zeitgeist. You know, for example, like Missing Richard Simmons, have you been listening? I have not been listening to Missing Richard Simmons. Oh, you should. It's, it is so good. It, it's the new serial. This thing is going to get tens of millions of downloads. It right, probably, but you see what is has. happening right now is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. It's just like, oh, man, you're never going to believe this super cool thing that I found. Because well, yeah, but you're, I found you're hearing it me say that, I'm but also, also if you one Google who's found it, it so far of all my friends. No, it's uh, not it's that, though. It's super like, exclusive this, this thing has right ups to educate in, you about. Dude, this thing has write-ups in like... People Magazine and Us Weekly and ET and the Seattle Times just wrote like a big article about it. Like it's everywhere. This um, thing has write-ups in the most exclusive publications that only literary nerds know about and uh, people who listen to podcasts religiously. It's like podcast number 59 on my timeline of podcasts that I've lined up. Um, but you you get what I mean? It's like... I, I do get it, but I also have seen obnoxious. you recommend the, the adventures of 100 people. I know, and I'm guilty of it. That's the problem. I am part of the problem, and I recognize it, and I hate myself for it. But that fits nicely with other aspects of my life. You know, it just blends naturally right into everything else I've got going on inside. Anyway, hashtag tripod. We just gave you two great shows that you could listen to. And also, you know, if you love us, use tripod with, with WWDW. Um, and also, do your best not to be the worst. That's all I ask. That should be our new tagline. Um, <laughs> So you said our guest today is Louise O'Neill? That is, in fact, true. She's a young adult author from West Cork, Ireland, and she's written a couple of books, the most recent of which is called Asking For It. Um, and we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about the state of young adult authorship in general. Uh, we talk about Irish authors in particular. And the topic of her book is actually incredibly relevant, um, tragic, and timely. And without giving too much away, it's about 
tragedy in the age of social media and how small town communities are affected by it. Um, and it's hard to get more specific without spoiling some of the things that happened, but I'll let Jeff try. I mean, I, I don't really want to get into it. Just, you know, know that it has to do with a lot of things that are big issues in contemporary times. Um, and it's a, a fictionalized account of, uh, you know, a lot of things that are actually happening in the world today. And also we, we start this episode just mid conversation. We're talking about an author. Uh, and I don't think we actually mentioned who that author is because the recording got a little you know, tweaked. Um, but it's James Joyce. So I don't know if up. the recording got tweaked so much as we just got into it very quickly and forgot to go back. <laughs> we just never hit the, the big red button. You're well, always a, supposed to hit the big red button. It's also fantastic uh, to talk to Louise in general, and I kind of got lost <laughs> in the beginning. So, Well, anyway, have at it. I have actually read it um, because I'm an intellectual, but um, <laughs> I don't believe anyone else who tells me they've read it. <laughs> I, I have read... Uh, Ulysses and I hated it. Oh, good. Okay, we're gonna we're we're gonna be friends. That's fine. <laughs> uh, I have not read Ulysses, nor do I claim to. Yeah, no, but you're not missing out on anything, so you're fine. It's supposed to be a classic, right? It's supposed to be um, yeah. a I, masterwork. I think it's a. It is supposed to be a masterpiece. I think it's one of those uh, books that everyone's really confused and can't understand it, and therefore they think that it must be a work of staggering genius. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to get excommunicated from the Irish literary uh, community, so maybe we should stop talking about this. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you, and I know that there's, you know, a, a large language barrier there, when it comes to me at least, because, uh, yeah. you know, he, he's like the Irish Shakespeare. Um, yes, that's true, what? except Shakespeare was good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, burn. I've got to stop, I've got to stop, I'm sorry. <laughs> We won't publish this part. It's fine. <laughs> well, no, it's just like at what point is it like genius, and at what point is it just like nobody has any idea what the fuck he's talking about? So. I don't know. But yeah, anyway. I feel like there is a direct correlation between how opaque a work is and how uh, well reviewed it is. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. Particularly if it's um, written by men, I feel. Um, you know, you've uh, got sort of like a lot of these very angry young men who are writing books um, about, you know, violent porn and masturbation and they're being heralded as just, uh, you know, again, uh, just these incredible, incredible literary works. Mm -hmm. I'm just reading and going, okay, are we are we reading the same yeah. book though? Um, but sure. Well, we actually, if you have uh, a few minutes, you should listen to the first 10 minutes of Dana Schwartz's interview. I uh, have. I listened to that. Oh, actually. Did I listened you? to the whole one. Yeah, it's great. Okay, great. Because we, you know, we talked to her a little bit about that. And, you know, I, I spent a long time in book publishing. And uh, that is something that, you know, we just keep going back to over and over again. It's, yeah. You know, yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's um, it's interesting. Um, I'm not sure if Marion Keyes um, is a big name in the US. Um, she's um, an American writer, or sorry, an Irish writer. Um, she sold like 24 million copies of her books worldwide. Um, and it's funny because they deal with issues like addiction and um, rape and violence and um, uh, depression. Um, but they're also really funny. Um, and it, it's been really interesting to see how they've been marketed. Like they've been sold as, I suppose, you know, like chiclet or commercials, women's fiction, um, these very, you know, pink covers with, you know, shoes kind of thrown on the, um, on the front. And it's, it's, it's interesting to see how they've sort of been dismissed 
as you know chick lit or very domestic fiction and then someone like a Nick Hornby uh, you know or even a David Nichols who's writing I suppose I would say sort of similar kind of uh, in a similar genre and how that's lauded Um, or Colin Tabin who I think is just an incredible um, writer but a lot of his work is actually very domestic Um, and I think if it was written by a woman it too would have sort of been put into that ghetto of um, uh, commercial women's fiction but because it's written by a man you know it's been um, nominated for um, Booker Prize and you know all of that so it's it's interesting to see the disparity between how um, male and female writers are treated. It is really interesting. And, and, you know, I'm not old enough to know if this is an argument that has been going on for 50 years or not. But mm-hmm. but I will say that at least in other parts of the publishing world, you know, we we are seeing people kind of realize that. And, mm. uh, you know, like writers by people of color, like it, yes. it's, it's kind of like the new the new in vogue thing is, mm. you know, you have to publish, you know, authors who are not white. And that's all that people are reading. And you're you're selling a million books because of it, and you know that's not to take away from those books because they're all amazing. Uh, but you know I do feel like we're we're getting into this territory where it's the new cool thing to like you know to not read books by white guys. Yeah, but they still I get suppose, held up in the media. Like yeah, especially I, Jonathan Franzen comes to mind as someone yeah. who yeah who writes relationship based fiction that reads uh, it reads like genre fiction, but it's mainstream. Well, also if you. If you go back to like when Purity came out last year, half the reviews out there are basically like, "Oh, look, another book by a white dude." I uh, think I, I and I understand where you're coming from, but I suppose first of all, I feel a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of saying it's you know in vogue because I I don't think um, you know books written by women or books written by um, people of color is a trend. Um, you know, I think that's it's just about. I suppose widening our horizons, and yeah, I no, actually made um, no, 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 and I, I know that's not, I know that's not what you're implying, but I, mm-hmm. I suppose I made a pact um, a few years ago that I was going to read um, for a couple of years exclusively, actually, female writers, and then in the last year that I made um, sort of a pact with myself that I was going to read more um, writers of color, and and that isn't, I suppose, to disparage. Um, white male authors because obviously those stories are really important and those stories need to be told but for years those were the only stories yeah. that need to be told um, and I suppose there has to be balance and maybe if the pendulum has swung you know very far in one direction then it needs to swing completely in the other direction before it can you know come to a balance in between. And and I agree with everything that you're saying you know I know that I, I sounded like oh, I didn't. Well but... done no 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 you're, that's well, the right answer. <laughs> yeah, and and I mean, Kyle can tell you that I've been a big proponent of that for years now. Where you know, I, I actually inadvertently I did not make that pact, but I looked at my bookshelf recently, and you know, I think the the only book that I've read by you know a white male in the last year or so is like Phil Clyde's book, um, which I had already read in the past. But uh, and which book? Uh, Redeployment. Uh, no, I haven't. No, sorry, I haven't read it. It's uh, Phil Cly. He won the National Book Award a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. Um, but in any case, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just something I've been noticing. And I don't think it's a bad thing, you know, for all the reasons that you said. You know, I had a conversation with an author a couple of years ago where I, I basically made that same argument, you know, with a, with a different anecdote. And she looked at me and she goes, well, yeah, but like, you know, what if you grew up and you like had never read an author, mm. like a, a white male author or whatever, uh, you know, and you went your whole life without reading it, and then all of a sudden you have this like flood of these books. Like you would spend forever like trying to catch up, and that's mm. exactly you know what everybody's what trying people... to do. So. Yeah, 
Yeah, as a as a as a straight white male, it's hard for me to conceptualize what it must be like to look around at popular culture and not see a representation of you out there and to be starved yeah. for that sort of thing. Yeah, I, th- I think that was a big reason why I wanted to read more um, female authors was I think I just, you know, I, I, I suppose my a burgeoning sense of feminism and also a kind of a weariness of constantly being made to look at the world, um, especially in an artistic sense, through a male lens, whether that was, you know, TV or film um, or literature, always sort of the protagonist being male and having to fit myself into something that didn't quite... Um, feel comfortable in order to do you, do you understand what I'm saying so if, oh, like, yeah. as I said I was always sort of seeing through this prism of a male experience uh, rather than a female experience um, and that can get very tiring after a while yeah I'm sure one of the things that I've learned to try for for me it's been about recognizing the lens um, mm. and again as someone as a straight white male to be able to look around and take for granted the fact that most of the stories that I'm reading and seeing and listening to or being told from a lens that I immediately relate to uh, mm-hmm. that adds clarity to the context and then to start branching out as I get older and I realize, you know, as, as I start to become more aware of my surroundings to start recognizing how important that lens is by yeah. seeing these stories told from other perspectives and how it changes yeah. even the simplest moments. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I suppose representation is just so important because I remember... Um, I remember as a teenager, um, you know, because I suppose the sort of images of beauty, you know, that I was um, consuming, whether on TV or whether um, in magazines, were always, you know, obviously always, well, they were usually white um, and were always kind of blonde and tanned and blue eyed. And I remember feeling like I wasn't beautiful because I had red hair and I had pale skin. Um, And then as I got older and I, you know, I moved to New York um, to work uh, for a fashion magazine there. And obviously I made friends with um, women of color. And I suppose it was this real moment of realization that if I had felt alienated because I didn't think that I saw anything that represented me, what would it have been like, you know, to have grown up as a woman of color and to never see anyone that looked like you in any sort of pop culture? Um, And again, how I suppose how damaging that must be to your sense of self. Um, And that's why I think that now I really am such a proponent of obviously that like diversity and representation is just so crucial. So I'm sorry for the white straight men, but you're just going to have to sit down. <laughs> no, that's the... and just wait a while. <laughs> Listen, well, no, it... we'll do some listening. It's about time. Yeah. yeah. And and you know, again, I I agree with everything that you've said because I do think that it's incredibly important. And and you know, the the veil was lifted, you know, from my eyes a couple years ago, and I like I didn't realize the damage that had been done, or I guess mm. not damage, but the the ignorance that had been there prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been yeah. making like a very concerted effort to try and, you know, fix that over the last few years. And, um, you know, welcome to the birth of this podcast. Yeah, I love it. I, I, it's, um, I've listened to some of the other um, episodes and um, it's fantastic, by the way. So congrats to the two of you. Thank you. Thank you. It's all Kyle. He's the mastermind uh, here. That's, that's... <laughs> so how are you otherwise? I'm good. Um, I 2016 was a slightly crazy year. Um, so I've just Seems tried. Like it. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a bit actually. Um, I. It's funny because 
you know, I, it's like everything that I've ever ever wanted um, sort of came true. And then I really didn't know if I could actually cope with it. Um, it just, it, particularly I suppose in Ireland, um, you know, because the book has been doing, you know, really well. But in Ireland, it just like it just took off. And all of a sudden people were recognizing me on the street and, you know, asking. And that's not why you become an author, like, you know, so that you, you don't think you're going to get that kind of attention. Um, so it's been a little bit um, overwhelming. So I've sort of retreated to the country um, uh, just to write and just to be nice and quiet and to hibernate uh, for 2017. So I'm looking forward to it. I've, I've actually heard that a few times from from authors that have like seen a lot of success that they kind of want to mm. just, you know, get back into their cocoon. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, ultimately, like all you want to do is sit there and write. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I think the promotion and the publicity can is fun in some ways, but it's very, I think with the writing, it's so fulfilling that, you know, you feel very energized from it. Um, whereas with the publicity and the promotion, it, it's quite draining because it's sort of a an energy where you're trying to get people to like you. Um, mm-hmm. And so you're giving quite a lot of yourself, um, but you're not really getting anything back. Um, so it, it can be yeah you kind of feel a little bit hollow afterwards so i I spent uh a little more than five years working at a an independent book publicity firm working with like all of the different publishers and yeah and and the first thing that we always used to say uh you know most authors knew this and some didn't but you know (laughs) writing the book is is oftentimes the easy part uh and then selling it is is where you know the hard work comes in Mm, yeah and i think a lot of it is you know, a lot of it is luck and I suppose um, just, you know, visibility and, you know, word of mouth and trying to get the publicity. And it's it really is like magic. Sometimes you you, you just don't know what is going to what, you know, what sort of the ingredients to make um, the book successful. It just it, it's really it's such a, I suppose, an impossible science to try and determine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the the good and the bad side of it, because, you know, you have these breakaway successes that nobody, you know, anticipated. And then you also have the books that, you know, are supposed to be like the best sellers that don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I I was that I was that person um, because I know with my book, um, when we were when when I was trying to, you know, when I I sent it out to agents um, and I sent it to about 25 agents. um, And within a week, I'd heard from 16 saying that they wanted to see the full uh, manuscript. Um, and I had like, you know, went over to London, I had meetings with six and then I had offers from five. Um, and it's, you know, I thought, wow, this is it now, you know, I'm going to sell it for this huge, I'm going to get a six figure sum. <laughs> I'm finally going to be able to move out of my parents' house. Um, and, um, and then, you know, when they started sending it to publishers, um, it just, it, it seems so difficult. You know, they didn't, weren't quite sure if it was YA or adult or how they were going to market me. And I suppose you don't realize that it's not just enough that the editor is a fan of your work, you know, that they, that sales and marketing and, you know, publicity all have to be uh, on board as well. Um, so it was interesting when the first book sold, because I was always really convinced that it was going to do well. Um, and my editor, who is um, slightly more, I suppose, um, you know, she, she does, you know, that she would be a little bit more conservative than, than me. And she said, you know, 
you know you never know and it's hard to tell and I was like no no it's going to it's going to do really really well <laughs> so I think they got me for an absolute song um so every time I went over they just they were also delighted to see me because I think there's nothing more discouraging than if you buy a book for a huge advance um mm-hmm. and it's something that you really believe in and you know I've seen it happen and everyone in in the in in every sort of department is doing their absolute best to make it be a success and if it just doesn't take off um, I think it, it, it's kind of heartbreaking for, it's not just heartbreaking for the author, I think it's for everyone involved. Um, so because I think mine was one of those books that they, you know, um, you know, were, you know, I think they really believed in me, but they weren't, you know, they weren't sure how it would do. Um, and they mar- they were so clever, I suppose, in the way that they um, marketed it. Um, but there was such a sense of, I think, good feeling um, around it after that. So I mean that's that's you know best case scenario and and it's always fun to see you know when that happened but uh, you know I have a few like just nitty gritty questions you worked for a fashion magazine like, I, yeah, I believe sure. the magazine was L uh, it was and were you actually writing for them or or what no I was actually um, working um, I suppose as an um, I was interning as an assistant stylist um, for the senior style director um, Kate Lanfear who was just the most wonderful warm woman she it's funny because I suppose everyone kept asking oh is it like the devil wears Prada and I was like if I could fit myself into my boss's pocket and just be carried around with her all day I would do that because <laughs> she was just the nicest woman ever so no she completely defied all stereotypes you know it's it's difficult it's a difficult job it's long hours um I wasn't obviously getting paid but you know I think even as you know an assistant um, at a magazine um you know the pay isn't great and I think it's one of those things where you know obviously when I started writing the pay wasn't great either but I absolutely loved it um and I think that's the difference that I knew while I was there that while I really enjoyed fashion and while while I really appreciated fashion um, as an art form it just didn't make me feel fulfilled um as a job and I suppose when you're as I said when you're working long hours and you're getting terrible pay you need to be doing something that you absolutely love because what's the point otherwise yeah oh yeah i mean i, I we could we could give you a lot of anecdotes about that but um you know <laughs> Did I guess, you work at l2 <laughs> no Weird. no i think that's the i think that's the story of young people in new york is just terrible pay and long hours yeah. and yeah. wondering what you're doing and why <laughs> It's hard. I was talking to a very good friend of mine um, who's still in New York and, you know, she was she is she just sounds very burnt out. And the language that she was using, she was like, I need to work harder. I need to hustle more. And I, felt like, and I, I just said to her, I was like, no, you, you need to take a break. And I think New York is the sort of city where it's it's an amazing city and it's there's, it's so vibrant and there's so many opportunities. But it, it sort of creates this um, mentality in you that, you you know, if you if you step off you know for or if you sort of slow down even for a few months that you're going to fall behind um and that you're going to miss out um and it's just this constant sort of effort and you have to achieve and you have to be striving towards a goal um and I, I think that sometimes we can achieve more by doing less or maybe that's just my way of comforting myself for being really lazy but um I'm just I think it sounds really wise so we'll just leave it at that. I love that mindset and it's also like uh, New York is the best city in the world in my mm. humble opinion and I agree. It's also soul crushing. Like being here is beautiful. Yeah. It's amazing. Every second is inspiring and at mm-hmm. the same time there is a weight on my shoulders just pushing me into the concrete. 
<laughs> I know because you, the problem with New York is that, and I and I, I I actually agree with you. I do think it is the best city in the entire world, and I had an incredible year there, and I made the most amazing friends. But the feeling when you're in New York is that you're never quite good enough, you're never quite achieving enough, um, and it's just constantly sort of looking over your shoulder. You know, are they having a better time than me? Is this person more <laughs> successful? Should I have achieved more at this stage in my career? Um, and that that is just soul destroying, actually. You know, after a oh, while, yeah. so. I hope you're, you know, I hope you're enjoying yourselves with all the amazing art and food. Well, now I can take solace. That city is killing you. <laughs> I can take solace in the fact that if I do choose to leave, maybe, just maybe, there is a book that will just happen. <laughs> just, yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's it's actually funny, and you know, I hesitate to say this now, but I, I left New York a few months ago, um, and I have every intention of coming back. But I've been more productive in the last few months than I have been in the last five yeah. years. Yeah. So everything is it's I because I when I moved home like obviously I live in a very small town now it's like three thousand people here, um and you forget uh, even things like going to the like the post office or you know the well, what do they call them in um, America again like the mail center or, you know whatever um that's so easy here like I just walk like three minutes down the road <laughs> whereas you'd nearly need like a day off in New York you're like oh I've got to post this package <laughs> okay shit I have to do you know everything kind of takes that much longer um but then you know there are all the as we said you know the rewards of art and culture and it, mm. it's you know it's so multicultural um and I mean which was I remember I first went to New York when I was 12 my dad had lived there um on and off in the 80s um and uh, we went back what age related to 98 maybe um and um it, it was, you know, at that stage, Ireland is much more multicultural um, now, but it was it was very white then. Um, and I remember coming, we went back to the hotel and I sat, I remember just sitting down on the bed and turning to my dad and I was like, there's just so many black people, isn't there? Um, and he just went, yeah, but please never say that in public ever again. And I, it was just, it was really astounding to me because I just had never, it was, and I know that sounds so terrible now, mm -hmm. but uh, but I thought that was it was an incredible experience to live there and just you know there was so many different cultures and so many different um you know different types of uh, people who have different religions and races and ethnicities and it was just an amazing experience I'm so glad that I did this I think everybody has like that cultural awakening you know I, yeah. I, I I'm also from a very small town where you know I think it's statistically speaking like 98 percent white mm. um so, you know, I, I lived in Boston for a little bit and then went out to New York and and it was eye opening because, you know, all of these things that you've always read about and like, you know, watching the news and on TV, like become reality. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, I think everybody should have that moment. But unfortunately, quite a few people like stay stuck in that bubble. Um, mm -hmm. That said. Uh, we're here to talk about books and writing. And yeah, sorry, I, went off no, a little tangent there. No, no, no. And I, and I, I, you know, that's the best part about these things. But I, I thought, <laughs> I always think that it's really charming when, you know, you're an Irish author, but there are quite a few other authors that, uh, you know, have like a different, um, like version of English, I guess. Uh, and you, you, you know, we're talking about like, you know, calling the the post office the post and that oh, kind yeah. of thing. And that, you know, when I was reading your book, I noticed that there was a lot of other instances where uh, yes. you know, the language was a little different. And I wanted to talk a little bit about like the editing process that you had between, you know, the Irish version of your novel. And yeah, the, the I, I, I love this because, sorry, anyway, continue. This is just 
no one's asked me this question before um and i'm delighted you have so go yeah. for it <laughs> well no and, and that's that's the question it's like you know i i'm so curious if you think it's charming when you read like american novels and you know what what kind of changes they have to make because there was this like really brilliant essay years ago about jk rowling writing harry potter for uh the american audience and mm. like ever since i've always noticed that with foreign authors well, it's funny because um, obviously with Only Ever Yours, um, that is set in, you know, it's a dystopian future. So there weren't really that many changes that needed to be made um, with asking for it because it's such an Irish novel. Um, it's, you know, intrinsically very Irish. Um, and there was, a you know, quite a lot of colloquial um, language um, and... It was interesting um, when they when we were editing it um, and when my and the American editor was coming back to me because I actually fought um, for a lot of uh, the Irish um, expressions to be kept because, you know, there was things like um, we would say the bin and she was like, OK, well, we want to change that to trash can. Um, or the um, the uh, something like the, uh, oh, yes, the car park. And she was like, you know, we want to call that the parking lot. The footpath, um, they wanted to change that to side path, you know, uh, sidewalk. Um, and I actually felt really, I actually felt quite annoyed about it um, because I said, you know, you're really dumbing down here. It's like you expect that. And I, I felt frustrated actually on behalf of American readers because there was this sort of, um, and I, I don't think this is uncommon and I don't think this is unique to my um, American editor, but there were, I've had this experience, I've had this conversation with other um, Irish authors who have been published in the US. Um, this sort of um, belief that um, American audiences won't be able to understand um, that kind of language. I'm like, I, I think if I say car park, they're going to be able to understand that that's a parking lot. Like, you know, they're not stupid. Um, and it, like, I, you know, it's just, it's really, it's ridiculous. I mean, there were certain things, um, you know, here, if, um, my, if my mom asked me to go down to um, the shop, let's say the store to get um, uh, some, you know, some groceries, she would say to me, would you go get the messages? Um, and like I, and then when when I understood, I was like, okay, you can change that because that is actually a little bit confusing. I would imagine if you've never heard that um, that phrase before. Um, but I was like, no, you're, just keep just just keep car park. Like you know, honestly, it's fine. They'll under like I'm sure the reader will understand it in the context um, of you know the book or where what it's talking about they'll you know we drove into the car park what where are they are they in space <laughs> i mean i think they'll be okay um and i suppose um what i find interesting about that is because um uh in ireland you know we consume a lot of um american uh pop culture you know we uh, read american books we watch american television um, I think we'll probably actually look to America more than we would even do um, to Britain because of a sort of a post-colonial rejection um, of uh, British um, influence. Um, so, you know, we're very used to language that you would use um, and just translating it. Um, so I suppose because I feel like that we can do that um, and that we've done that for quite a long time, that I think that it should go the other way as well. Um, and I, I really, I, I did find it quite frustrating, this implication that the American reader was less intelligent or less um, able to make those connections because I felt that was really insulting. Um, so I, I did it for your benefit, really, is all I'm going to say. I just, I believe in you guys um, and I knew you would be able to do it. <laughs> well, was there any differences with like the, because this is 
you know, a question mostly out of my own ignorance, but what are Irish publishing houses like compared to American ones? Um, well, I'm actually um, published by a British um, publishing house, even though my editor is Irish, which was uh, such a joy, particularly for um, uh, asking for it. And the reason why, actually, is sometimes as an Irish author writing about Ireland, it can be very easy to descend into cliche. Um, and you want to talk about, you know, the influence of the church, even though that's much, I mean, I, you know, I haven't gone to mass in years, but it's still, I suppose, quite embedded into our DNA um, because the legacy of, you know, a lot of the damage that the church did is, you know, it's in a not so distant past. And, you know, you want to talk about the church and you want to talk about the local priest and uh, the guards and, you know, Gaelic football um, and Irish culture. Um, and you want to do it in a way that feels fresh and modern um, and that you're not, you know, sort of aping every other um, story that has ever come beforehand. So it was great to have an Irish um, editor because she could say, oh, you need to rein that in. Or actually, I think you could push that a bit further. Um, and, you know, so it was it was great um, having that. But um, so I'm published by Quirkus, which is based in the UK. Um, there are some smaller um, Irish publishing houses. And they're doing some great work. Um, one in particular, actually, um, is called Tram Press. Um, and I'm very good friends, obviously, um, with the two women um, who decided they, they discovered Donald Ryan and there's um, publishing Sarah, um, Sarah Baum and um, Mike McCormack, who just um, has won every award going for his novel Solar Bones this year. Um, and they are just amazing. Um, and they have a, it's, it's a very small operation. They only publish books that they absolutely adore. Um, and they, their success rate so far has been sort of astounding because it's really, it's just two women, basically, you know, they don't even really have an office. Um, and it's been fascinating to see how lean they can be in comparison sometimes to, as I said, uh, you know, some of the bigger UK um, publishers where it seems to be sort of by committee that the editor might love it, but then the, sale, the sales team don't know how to um, how to package it. Uh, so maybe they lose the book, whereas um, somewhere like Tram Press um, can just run with it because they don't have, you know, they don't have to uh, kind of, I suppose, go through all that bureaucracy. Yeah. And that's the the best kind of publisher, I think. I mean, all publishers are great. Like there's something to be said about having a larger publisher because you have you know the machine behind you. Yes. No, I agree. Um, I, I totally. And, you know, it's like when people say to me, you know, did you ever think of self-publishing? Um, and which I get all the time. Um, and uh, I, I didn't because I don't know anything about covers. I don't know anything about marketing. I don't know anything about sales. I don't know anything about publicity. Um, and what I just wanted to write my book um, and then be protected um, in all those other ways and have people who were experts in their field. And actually what's really interesting about publishing that I found anyway was I suppose I didn't quite realize what a collaborative effort it is. Um, you know, as the author, your name is on the cover. and But my editor is just integral to this entire process um you know i often say that her book her name should be on the cover as well because we we work so closely together and i'm really open to collaboration i'm really open to uh i suppose cooperating with everyone around me because i know that we all want this book to be the best that it can be and if i'm going to be precious about you know changing this word or that word um i'm, I'm standing in my own way um so and I, and I never want to do that you you sound like a dream author to work with. <laughs> they well, I, I have heard that they have said that. Um, so I'm sort of the teacher's pet, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I I am going to read a piece of the press release, uh, okay. which I don't like to do on like I don't like to read on this because it's always very canned. But 
I, I don't want to screw up any of these facts because I think that they're very important. Uh, mm-hmm. So asking for it, which, you know, for our listeners, if we haven't mentioned it, is uh, you know, Louise's newest book. Um, asking for it is a provocative, terrifyingly familiar story that examines rape culture and victim blaming in today's society. The facts are undeniable. Every two minutes, someone is sexually assaulted in the United States. 60% of these cases go unreported. Approximately 65% of the time, the assault was at the hands of friends, acquaintances, or intimate partners. And only 3% of the accused rapists go to prison. Now, this book is categorized as YA. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us why you chose to give it that, extinct, that distinction? Well, it's funny, because when... When I wrote um, my first novel, um, Only Ever Yours, I didn't actually really think that I was writing a, um, a YA novel. You know, I just wrote this book. And then when I started sending it out to agents, um, they seemed very keen that it would um, do well for the young adult market. Um, and I started thinking of that John Green dollar. And I said, OK. Um, and um, they, and I suppose actually that was a bit of a, an issue with the publishers when we started submitting was that, they didn't really feel that Only Every Yours was YA, but they weren't sure if it was adult either, which is why I think Quirkus, um, who bought it in the end, were really, really smart about how they published it. Because with both Only Every Yours and Asking For It, they published in hardback um, as a YA novel and then as in, uh, in paperback as an adult novel. So they repackaged it with a new cover um, and sold it into, into the um, adult. Yeah. Um, and I suppose, uh, you know, a lot of people have said that to me and they're like, you know, they're very dark, you know, they're they're really bleak. Um, they're very hard hitting, they're very provocative. You know, should our teenagers be reading this? And I feel like saying, do you have any idea what your teenagers are actually reading? Um, because, you know, and they're like, my daughter's 15. Do you think she, I, do you, I mean, what they're being exposed to, like just by because I mean I, when I, I remember when I when I was fourteen or fifteen like sneaking downstairs at four a.m. to like read erotica online with our like very slow dial-up internet. Now if I was doing that back in like two thousand and two thousand basically, I mean what do you think your kids are doing now? You know with with smartphones and what you know and it's just I suppose they're trying to keep their children as actual children rather than what they are, which is young adults. Um, and I suppose the the reason why young adult fiction has been so successful, particularly, and I suppose why, you know, young um, authors of YA fiction are trying to take these kind of risks is because I think as a, an author who has written for YA, you know, you want to protect um, young adults. You want to try and give them the tools with which they need to survive um, the landscape of this world that they're sort of uh, coming of age um, in. Um, and unfortunately, sexual violence um, is is a part of that. Um, and I, you know, I suppose when I talk to friends of mine now and we talk about things that happened to us when we were teenagers um, and we kind of brushed it off at the time you know we didn't want to be we didn't want to be sort of high maintenance we didn't want to cause a fuss we didn't want to cause hassle we didn't want to be that girl um and then when we when we tell each other our stories and we just look at each other and we say that wasn't right was it and we're like no but we didn't have the information we didn't know that actually what was happening to us was 
wrong or that we could say no or that we shouldn't be have our bodies be touched without our consent in that way um and i suppose i often think if i had read books like only ever yours or asking for it um maybe i would have been better equipped to deal with um some of the horrors um, of my adolescence in particular but uh, you know being a teenager in general um and so i think that while I obviously love that my books are read by people of all ages, um, it's really, I, I think, more important that um, teenagers, both boys and girls, um, are reading this kind of material um, and just thinking about these ideas um, in a more critical way than maybe I did at their age. One of the things I've always found interesting about young adult in particular, and maybe this is just specific to the young adult that I've read recently, but it always seems to be... Uh, first person perspective mm. um, and it seems like that lends a certain emotional weight to the things that are happening and I you yeah know, I think back to my own teenage years when every emotion felt like it carried the weight of this yeah. life-changing event um, yeah how, how important was perspective to you when you started writing um, it's funny that you say that about the um, first person um, perspective because I'm currently finishing um, an adult an adult novel and it sort of goes between uh, first person and third person. And it was interesting how much more natural the third person um, perspective felt when I was writing about adult characters. But I think you're right, there's such... What I think what people like about YA fiction as well is that our teenage experiences are so... Uh, I think they, they still feel so fresh to us because, they, you know, they're, they're the, it's the, there's a lot of firsts. You know, it's like the first time you fall in love, the first time you have sex, the first time you have your heart broken, uh, the first time you, you know, get drunk, the first time you get high, the first time you drive a car, uh, you know, and I suppose the other first that you have sort of the first time you learn how to walk, you know, you can't really remember those as well. Um, so I think there's a real immediacy and a very sort of a, a, an urgency um, to uh, being a teenager. Um, and it, it all just feels so powerful and immediate. And when, when you're trying to express that, when you're trying to put that kind of energy down on, page, on the page, it, it does come out very much, um, for me anyway, it just seems much more natural to write um, in um, a first person um, voice. But voice is just so important anyway. And for Only Ever Yours, the voice came really easily. Um, again, as I said, that sort of, it just really seemed to come. Um, and with asking for it, um, it was interesting because there was a lot of uh, re-edits of that. And some of the first notes that my editor had was she was like, the voice isn't quite right. Um, and she said, you know, you're, it's too narrow a perspective. She said, I need you to pull out, like, you know, as if as if I was looking through um, a camera lens. And she said, you know, you're, you're trained so much on Emma right now that I need you to pull out so that we can see the other characters, that we can see the world around her. Um, and that was actually really useful advice. Um, and I think it took me about two or three drafts to really get her voice, to really, really just just to make it distinctive and to make it just really plausible and feel realistic. Um, and for I suppose for me, I think that is the most important thing, particularly if you are writing in first person, uh, that the voice feel very authentic. There was another technique that I, I noticed, and uh, it's something... I feel like is familiar to young adult novels as well because of that first person perspective. You see authors finding different ways to express uh, internalizations. Mm. Um, and one of the things that stuck out as 
as unique and effective in asking for it was the way you sort of give us insight into her thinking process, despite the way that she's speaking to other characters through the parenthetical. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know if there's a word for that. Yeah, <laughs> I created um, this. I have no idea. No, I'm kidding. Um, sorry, continue. No, I was going to say, I thought that was a really interesting technique for giving us more insight into the actual inner workings of her despite herself almost and I wonder yeah. I was wondering if that came through initially or if that was part of the editing process um I think that came through initially it's hard for me to remember now because it was a while ago um I suppose what it was something that I think I had originally and then my editor was very keen on exploring was the idea that um what Emma, what Emma, I suppose, internalizes is often very different to how the world sees her. Um, like I think in Emma's mind, she is the most beautiful girl, you know, in the entire world. Um, and I think that while she is very beautiful, you know, there are definitely characters in the book who don't find her attractive um, and who don't look at her in that way. But the way she perceives it is that every man that she comes across instantly falls in love with her. Um, and I suppose it was interesting to try and sort of hint at a tension between how Emma sees herself, how the world sees Emma, but also uh, um, a real disparity between the image that Emma presents to the world, um, with the image that she wants to present of herself to the world, and how different, um, I suppose, her internal thought processes are. Um, and I definitely was not like Emma, because I, I get asked this a lot in interviews. They say, God, Emma was such a bitch. And then they say, was she based on you? And I'm like, I'm not sure what impression I'm giving, but uh... thank you. Um, but uh, I, that was very, that actually was very, that sense was very familiar to me of, um, I, you know, I had very, I, I had suffered from um, anorexia and bulimia, bulimia for most of my, uh, teen, well, actually all of, I suppose I was 14, so pretty much all of my um, teenage years and well into my 20s. Um, and it was funny when I, you know, when I was first hospitalized when I was 21, um, because people were very, very surprised uh, you know, and they said you know you just always seem so fine you always seem so self-sufficient you always seemed really happy you always seemed like really popular and like you kind of had everything together um so I suppose for me that was a very very familiar dynamic of being obsessed with maintaining this image of perfection um and this image of oh no I'm fine I'm totally fine um, and really just feeling very alone and very kind of utterly hopeless, actually, in a lot of ways. Um, and this kind of crack between my social self and the real self. Um, and I wanted to explore that um, with Emma. And I think this is, I mean, this is the sort of the perfect transitional element to the story that you struggled to tell. Yeah. Um, because I'd be interested in how you tackled that process, knowing uh the personal struggle that you went through to deal with it personally, how you sort of start to take that and mold it into something that is relatable to a character who's not you and expand that lens to include, um, you know, people who have suffered from different versions of the same thing, essentially. Mm. Um, well, yeah, I suppose the book that I started writing um, when I was about 23, 24, um, which I t- entitled Bedlam, um, was... It was going to be a very, uh, I suppose, <laughs> which is, I know, very PC. Um, but um, I, you know, I had been hospitalized. Um, when I was, um, I had, I, I kind of developed anorexia when I was about 14. And then it veered into bulimia. Um, and then I had very bad bulimia from 
for about 10 years um, and um, I was hospitalized when I was 21. Um, I spent three months um, in a, a, a mental health hospital here in Ireland, um, St. John of God's. Um, and it was a very odd experience. You know, I was I was 21. I was at university. Um, I had a very hectic social life, to say the very least. Um, and loads of friends, you know, you know, so sometimes when people think of people with eating disorders, they think of someone sort of in their room, um, you know, never going out. I was a very high functioning addict. Um, and uh, so when I was hospitalized, it was it was actually quite traumatizing um, because, you know, you get quite institutionalized. And even though it was, you know, it was a great hospital and everyone there, you know, they treat you very well you know, you're still in hospital, like someone comes in, you know, twice during the night to sort of shine a torch on you to make sure that you're still alive. And if you have a headache, you know, you can't just say, oh, I'm just going to take some Panadol, you know, they have to sort of monitor all of that. And it just, you know, on Saturday nights when friends of mine would be out, you know, drinking or, you know, doing whatever they were doing. And I was sitting in, in this hospital room and I just kept looking, I remember I just kept looking at myself in the mirror, I was, which is funny because mirrors are a real motif, um, sort of running through all my work, um, and I just kept saying, you know, I'm, I'm too, I'm too young for this, this isn't supposed to be my life, this isn't supposed to, what is, this isn't supposed to be my, what, you know, my story, um, and I did feel as if, like I had been changed by it in some sort of way that, you know, that people were like, oh, you know, Louise was hospitalized. That, that sort of was part of my identity now. Um, and when I when I wanted to write a story about a girl who was put into a hospital with anorexia um, and I started writing it um, and it just I kept stopping because it just felt too close to the bone um, and just incredibly difficult to write. Um, and and also, I suppose, because I knew that people obviously were aware that I had suffered. And I thought that if I everything that I put into the book, um, they would automatically assume, probably correctly, that that it was something that um, that had happened to me or that I had done. Um, and there's a lot of I suppose there's so much shame around eating disorders. You know, there was like behavior that that I, you know, that I did, like, you know, like, I, I would steal money from my parents to, uh, you know, buy binge food um, to, and then make myself get sick afterwards. Um, and that wasn't really something that I wanted people to know about me because I suppose I wasn't really ready to admit that I was an addict, actually. Um, and I think sometimes with eating disorders, they're couched in very polite terms as sort of white middle-class girls um, and you know who get you know who have these problems, um, and people don't want to say it's an addiction. Um, and I think it was, um, and uh, the way that I behaved, um, and you know, you lie, you'll steal, you'll 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 say things that you don't mean in order to get the time and the space that you need to engage um, in that behavior. And I felt very very uncomfortable with that. Um, and I suppose our culture in general with um, seems to not reward anorexia, but I think it, it it's sort of there's there's elements of anorexia that we 
um, glorify in our uh, culture, particularly for women, you know, uh, self-discipline, self-denial, self-control, particularly around weight um, and uh, food. Bulimia is messy um, and, you know, it's this idea of appetite and wanting too much and being greedy and never having enough. Um, and and there's, there was a real sense of sort of corrosive shame um, attached to that. Um, and I felt very, very reluctant uh, to put that story uh, to paper, um, I suppose, in such a in such a in such terms that directly mirrored my own experience. Um, so when I went about writing it, um, I I said, well, it just felt easier to talk about it in dystopian terms. And the hospital turned into a school um, and it, it was more comfortable, actually, for me to write about it with that sort of emotional distance. Um, and it's funny because Isabel or sorry, Frida, the main character in Only Ever Yours, and they're all given numbers and she's number 63. Um, and my room in um, St. John of God's in the hospital was number 63. So there were sort of little ways that I tried to uh, correlate the two. Do you ever intend on going back to write that story? Um, I might. Um, I think, I, I suppose, I think I probably will, but I think I'll have to be ready for it. Um, because actually, Only Ever Yours, as I said, really came, uh, you know, it did flow. Um, asking for it was a very traumatic book to write. Um, and because of that, I, I it would take me, I think, a bit of time um, to work up uh, to writing a to writing a story set in um, a rehab or in a an eating disorder clinic, um, I think I would need to be very well, um, very very well um, emotionally, um, very strong, um, because asking for it took a lot out of me. Um, because I suppose I was, you know, the day the the night before I sat down to start writing it, I had to t- you know have sort of a family meeting um, and tell my parents and my sister that I had been um, sexually um, assaulted when I was 19 um, and they were devastated like you know my mother who never cries like ever like she didn't cry at the notebook I mean what kind of monster doesn't cry at the notebook <laughs> um, and um, so she was she was just sobbing you know she was just like I can't believe you didn't tell us and I said I was afraid to tell you in case he murdered him um, but um, I so I suppose is obviously you know it's not my Emma's, Emma's story is not my story but um trying to I suppose process that experience um in some way uh through writing um and people say you know that it can be a, a it can be a healing experience and I suppose it can but it was it was it was very it was a very unhappy period um, writing that book. Um, I, it was not an enjoyable experience. Um, so in ways, I, I do actually feel very vindicated that it has done well um, and that people have responded to it um, and that because otherwise I feel like it would have just been a kind of, you know, me touching back into a very traumatic experience and sort of trying to dip into that trauma um, in order to create art um, that was never read or that never, I suppose, had any sort of, um, any sort of impact, um, that would have been hard to, um, deal with. But, um, luckily that hasn't been the case. And, you know, people, a lot of, uh, survivors have contacted, contacted me and want to sort of tell me how much the book has helped them. Um, and that's been not, you know, gratifying is the wrong word. Actually, it's been the most humbling, 
um, thing that I've ever um, that's ever happened to me in my entire life. So I feel very God. I was going to say I was going to sound like Justin Bieber. It was like I feel you know very blessed, <laughs> so blessed right now. Well, the the sneaky thing here is that I love everything Justin Bieber does. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, his new album is a real banger, so we're going to give him that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that, oh God. Where where can uh, our listeners find your work? Um, well, any good bookstore, um, first of all. I'm also on Twitter um, at O'Neill um, L. There's three L's. People, I would really need to specify this because there's this really nice guy called Orlando O'Neill um, who's living in Seattle who gets <laughs> like inundated with tweets for me. So it's O'Neillo with three L's. Um, and uh, yeah, so that you can find me on Twitter. But um, Only Ever Yours and Asking For It are available from Quirkus um, in all good bookstores. That was Louise O'Neill, author of Asking For It, which you can find wherever books are sold. iBooks, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore. Doesn't matter. Pick up the book. It's great. Uh, you can also find Louise O'Neill online, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at O'Neill O, O-N-E-I-L-L-L-O, three L's. Uh, big distinction there. Um, let her know what you thought of the book. Check out her documentary, um, which is also called Asking For It. Uh, you know, consume all of her content as we like to say in the media game. Uh, you can find... Is there a media game that we say that in? I don't think anyone says that in the media game. Yeah, I know. I, was I don't just... think anyone refers to it as the media game. I mean, the media probably does. But anyway, the, the music that you're hearing right now and in the beginning of the show uh, is from Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Public Library. Uh, he has a new CD coming out soon. I don't have a date yet, but we will let you know as soon as we do. I cannot wait. He's excellent. Check out his SoundCloud. It's Holland Patton Public Library. Uh, you can find us online at www.podcast.com. Um, we have a very cool Instagram account where we're posting a ton of pictures of uh, books that we're reading, podcasts that we're listening to, books that we want to read, uh, and a bunch of new info about like our episodes and what's to come and everything. Uh, if you like the show, you're going to love this account. Kyle is finally going to start taking pictures of these books, uh, which I'm, I'm taking about. pictures. I've not sent in said pictures, but they do exist. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't believe it, but I'm stoked to see them. Um, just building anticipation. That's what's really happening right now. I'm hyping my own contribution to a meaningless Instagram. It's not meaningless. We have like 400 followers. <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, <laughs> everything is meaningless. Fact. I'm a bit of an Instagram nihilist fact you're you're a contrarian again yet again uh make sure that you recommend any podcast doesn't have to be us using tripod um if you're interested in like the podcast industry in general just keep googling my name and the word podcasts because uh, i'm trying to write a lot more about the field i just had a piece in the daily dot uh which was called the podcasting state of the union not a name i came up with but a name that i really strongly support um i've been getting a lot of cool feedback it's been a lot of fun um we have a very infrequently updated uh, newsletter, which you can find at tinyletter.com slash podcast. Um, and yeah, we're stoked. Uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks with Lillian Cunningham of the Washington Post's presidential podcast. Uh, this has been a long one coming and one that uh, I'm very excited with. If you want to get ready for the episode, check out the George Washington episode. In any case, we'll see you guys in two weeks.